Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello and welcome to our viewers. My name is Jason Togit, Program Assistant at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today are Amy Chin and Xu Guoqi. Um, Amy is China correspondent at the New York Times. She's covered China's global soft power campaign, the emergence of its vast censorship apparatus, and the many ways in which Chinese citizens thrive, cope, and struggle in a landscape of deepening political control. Professor Xu Guoqi is Kerry Group Professor in Globalization History at the University of Hong Kong and author of among many other esteemed works, Olympic Dreams, China and Sports, 1895 to 2008. Their full bios have been posted on our website. So let's just get started. I'd like to start off with one question addressed to both of you. What image of the nation was China trying to present at home at these games and to the world? Looking back on these Olympics, were they successful? Oh, let's start with Amy. Thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here with you. I think that um, to the leadership in Beijing, I think that they really thought the games were a huge success. Um, just, you know, leading up to it, I think that they wanted to portray, portray to the audience at home this um, image of China as being this sort of source of stability at a time when there's so much chaos going on in the world right now. That even though, you know, in Tokyo, we saw um, an Olympics last summer that had, you know, uh, despite all the COVID precautions, quite a few um, COVID cases in the bubble. And this time around, you know, we we showed the strength of our zero COVID strategy, and we can pull this off. And you know, this is also on a global stage. So um, I think that that was the message at home, and I think that also played into the message abroad as well. Of course, there was this added geopolitical element to it too, where we had this kind of Ukraine crisis brewing in the background. So you had Putin coming and showing up at the opening ceremony and he, he and Xi Jinping also um, met and issued this joint statement together that was quite, um, you know, uh, I think a lot of people were taken aback by how strong that statement was. And so um, it was, you know, a sign of also to the world, the solidarity between China and Russia um, at a time that there's this international crisis brewing. Uh, so thank you very much, Jason. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, the CCP government actually, uh, its message has been always consistent for both Olympic Games. So the, the, the party has done brilliant job, deserve to be, to be proud of, deserve to be respected. So for uh, at home, of course, let's say just feel home, feel, feel very proud of your government, your party. Then at home uh, and abroad, basically China is great, everything is good. So don't mess up with us. That's, that's pr pretty much. Uh, but I guess for the uh, domestically, the message is uh, quite successful. Outside, I'm, I'm not sure for this Olympic game, but for, for first one, 2008, I think it's quite successful both sides at home and abroad. Uh, but this time uh, at abroad, I think it's uh, not that friendly. Yeah, it's a perfect segue actually in my next question. Uh, so for Amy, um, you were in Beijing in 2008 uh, during the Olympic games. It's 14 years later. How are everyday people in China relating to the second session compared to the first? Um, and what's the mood compared to the first? 
I remember 2008, I was just a student then, and it was um, such an electric atmosphere to be in Beijing in the months leading up to the Olympics and during the Olympics too. Um, I just remember watching uh, the opening ceremony on television with just a local family in like a third tier city. And everyone was, everyone was so excited to watch it. Everyone had been anticipating this moment. There were clocks all around the you know, country with countdown to the Olympic opening ceremony. Of course, everyone remembers that it was like on August 8th at eight o'clock. And I remember them being so nervous, the people I was with being so nervous that the world wouldn't understand kind of the um, nuances of the Chinese culture at the time. Obviously this time around, I was in Beijing as well, but it was a very different circumstance because of the pandemic, they decided to do what's called a closed loop bubble. Um, and so we were sort of in this bubble and just with other journalists basically. Um, but I actually was in the stadium this time around and I watched the opening ceremony and um, I was struck by how um, much more muted it was. And from what I could tell from, you know, conversations that we had over the phone or just observing social media too, it just didn't feel like there was as, as many expectations and anticipation for this Olympics. And also there wasn't just as much excitement. I think part of that is because of COVID, part of that is because Winter Olympics are just, the sports are not as popular in China. Um, even though they're becoming more popular. So I just felt like it was more muted. And it was to me most symbolized in um, the lighting of the Olympic cauldron. In 2008, it was this big spectacle where you had this incredible image of, um, you know, I think, was it Leaning, who was running around, oh, oh, I forget the name of the athlete, but he was running around it's on like a, it's yeah, yeah, on the, um, around the, the bird's nest and lit this huge flame. And this time, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but they lit the Olympic cauldron, but it was this tiny, tiny little like birthday candle, basically. Um, it was supposed to be this, uh, you know, show of it being very sustainable and um, environmentally friendly. And I actually kind of missed it because I was looking something up on my computer and I, and I missed the moment where they lit it. And I looked up and I was like, oh, did they light it? And they're like, yeah, they lit it. I'm like, where, where is it? I can't, I can't even see it. And I'm sitting in the stadium. So I just felt like it was just such a, so different compared to 2008. Interesting. Um, Professor Xu, do you think the way that sports and nationalism, the way that they connect has changed since 2008 um, in China? Uh, yes or no? Um, in short term, of course, it changed because uh, as uh, Amy mentioned earlier, in 2008, people seems generally excited uh, with the slogan, one world, one dream. The Chinese was, was so excited to tell the world uh, what good guys, uh, everything is good with a state of a state, uh, state of art facilities with millions of smiling volunteers with uh, basically the bird nest, right? And, and a water cube uh, with a brilliant performance. So at that time, I think the Chinese really want to show, uh, to please the rest of the world. But this time, of course, they basically just, as I mentioned earlier, the message is what good, we deserve to be respected Otherwise, don't mess up with us. But in, uh, so that so in other words, in short term, yes. But in long term, no. Because as I uh, argued in my book, Olympic Dream, because since 1895, the Chinese, for generations, has one dream, shared dream, to to search for power and wealth. Right. So basically, the part of uh, Chinese Olympic Dream, it could be a national dream too, to to be rich to be powerful, 
or to use a Chinese communist uh, rhetoric now, first to stand up, second to get rich, thirdly to be strong. So, that, so basically, so in that sense, it's a, we have to have a long-term perspective for this because it's not that only Chinese communist party's obsession. It's three generations or three different regimes generate uh, obsession too. So I'll give you several examples because in the beginning, the Chinese were motivated to, uh, to be interested in Olympic games or basically because China was sick man. The Chinese themselves, by the way, called, them, called China was sick man by Yan Fu in 1895. Then by the way, the Chinese first book to write about Olympic games, uh, to translate the Olympic with the I can compete, Olympia, right? That's published in 1930 when Chiang Kai-shek regime just came to power, right? So then of course, uh, later on, they basically try to, to win as many as gold medals in Olympic game to, to, to show China has stand up. So that's, I guess, in that sense, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, in long-term, long it's basically still about wealth and power. Very interesting. So I think, you know, we've seen in these games as, you know, as, as you both mentioned, they've been kind of muted in the United States. One thing that has not been muted is um, the reaction to several athletes such as Eileen Gu uh, and Zhu Yi and uh, several others. Um, so Amy, in a piece for the Times, on February 16th, you wrote, quote, to be a Chinese American Olympian is to be a lightning rod for patriotic, some say nationalistic sentiment. This seems to be true in both the US and Chinese media landscapes. How will all the attention on Chinese American athletes at these games affect Chinese American athletes and Olympic athletes in general in the future? I mean, I think we should start off by saying that I think the Olympics are just profoundly nationalistic, no matter which country it's hosting, because you, it's by virtue of the fact that you have countries, you know, people competing for different countries. Um, and this particular piece was about Eileen Gu, the um, free skier who was born and raised in California and um, American, but also her mother is Chinese and born and raised in China. And she decided to compete for China. And I think that, um, the reason why her uh, story really sparked a lot of controversy in the U.S. And, um, was because she is usually you, it's not unusual for athletes to compete for other countries, but usually it's because they can't make the the they can't make the teams of their own countries, and so people understand that they have you know want to be in the Olympics, big deal, and so they go to other countries. For Eileen Gu, she's one of the few athletes that had a choice you know she was widely favored and she did end up winning two gold medals and a silver medal which is you know a testament to her athletic ability so she had a choice to compete for the U.S. or China and she decided to compete for China and people in the U.S. were very critical of that decision thinking that she had they people called her you know a uh, traitor that she had betrayed her country the country that raised her and, um, and this, I think the same thing happened for some Chinese American athletes who were competing for either team China or team um, USA, where they were either criticized because they were seen as traitors. I think that this just speaks to just this political moment. Um, you know, previously we've seen sports be a sort of cultural bridge. Obviously, we saw that ping pong diplomacy is, you know, and we also know about how in 2008, like I spoke with one 
ping pong player who was born and raised in China and competed for Team USA, and he was welcomed in China. Um, people were really, that was just a different political moment. And right now, I think because you have this sort of rivalry going on between US and China, people, these people who were once seen as sort of cultural ambassadors between the two sides are really being forced, um, pressured on both sides in both the US and China to sort of pick sides. And I think that is just gonna become more fraught um, and we'll, we'll continue to see that playing out. Very interesting. So before the games, the focus was really on, at least in the United States, was on the diplomatic boycott, you know, sort of sort of to address these, the Chinese selected a Uyghur, Dilingar Hamjana, I'm probably mispronouncing uh, her name, um, to light the torch. Now looking back at this moment from a geopolitical perspective, do you think the boycott was successful? Do you think that uh, sort of the, the, the Chinese response to this in, in, in selecting a Uyghur to light the torch was was a successful one. Professor Xu? Okay, sure. Uh, I think diplomatic uh, boycott failed because, hmm. uh, because you have to ask objective. If you, if you basically use the diplomatic boycott to force Chinese government to change something, obviously it did not. Uh, by the way, uh, both uh, Chinese, both PRC and United States are masters of political size Olympic game because as I mentioned earlier, in 1979, uh, PRC finally returned to the Olympic family. So Deng Xiaoping was eager to take part in Moscow games in 1980. Then on January 20th, 1980, Jimmy Carter, the president of the United States issued a worldwide call to boycott Moscow game. The Chinese government, by the way, was very committed. They say almost just one page uh, the letter to the White House in Chinese that obviously still is a, the message quite simple, we are 100 percent behind you, right? So that's, so that's the United States. So then of course the Chinese uh, government also basically politicized the games as well in, from 1958 and 79 because of Taiwan issue, they withdraw from the Olympic games. Uh, so the boycott is a real boycott without ethnic or diplomatic boycott never worked. Is a, a support <laughs> for both, uh, both sides, by the way, initiated by United States. The first one, 1980, was real one. This time, the diplomatic one, but from uh, from historic perspective, did not work at all because uh, I don't think the Chinese government to change anything. Or most of Chinese back uh, back home did not pay attention to this anyway. Right. So that's my two cents. Thank you, I, I, Amy. If I, I don't know if you'd like to respond to this one as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on just your, um, you know, what your objective was, and you know, maybe by the objective was just to raise more awareness about what was happening, what's happening in Xinjiang and China's other rights abuses. And to that extent, maybe it's seen as sort of a success because there were more stories written about it, more people maybe learned about it than they might have would have otherwise. But I don't really think that there was that much of a difference. And you saw that in, um, you know, uh, this selection of this Uyghur cross-country skier to um, serve to light the Olympic cauldron. That was a very sort of <laughs> uh, I think we, uh, provocative um, selection, and you know, because there was no one there, the athletes have been warned prior to coming that they shouldn't speak out uh, about their view, um, about their political views. Otherwise, they'd be subject to Chinese law. And so, what you had was this basically kind of enforced silence within the bubble, where th these narratives about you know happy Xinjiang or whatever weren't weren't really being questioned by anyone there. Um, except for occasionally some journalists at the press conferences. 
So um, yeah, I think that um, it probably wasn't very successful in that respect. Thank you. And, and next, uh, just for Amy, this game has included more openly LGBTQ folks than any previous games, including the first ever non-binary Olympic athlete. What has coverage been like in China, especially in the context of a more hostile policies towards LGBTQ folks in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think that China was very eager to um, promote the, these games as being more gender equal than they've been in the past, something that Winter Olympics have been criticized for, but they really didn't play up the um, LGBTQ um, issue at all. Um, there was very little coverage, if anything, in the Chinese state media of um, the non-binary athlete, I think Timothy Ledoux, the Paris figure skater from um, America. And, um, and it just was sort of an, a non-issue. I mean, I think it was one of those just, we're just not gonna talk about it. We're not gonna make a big deal about it. And as you mentioned, this is coming at a time when um, the community in China is starting to see a lot more, you know, come under a lot of pressure. Act activist groups have been shut down. Um, we're starting to see just, you know, various examples of, in, for example, I just, I think recently they, they uh, some Chinese censors took out a lesbian storyline from the TV show Friends. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that that was their sort of their strategy was just to not talk about it. Interesting. Professor Xu, do you think, you know, if this had happened in, uh, in previous years in 2008, or even, you know, a Chinese athlete at a previous Olympics, it would have had a similar reaction? Or, or do you think sort of this is, you know, unique to the moment? Yeah, 2008 was really, it's a different China. Uh, I think Amy mentioned about the political side, certain thing. For example, uh, in 2008, the, uh, the head coach of American women's volleyball team was Lam Chen, a national hero in China. Her team, American team, defeated Chinese women's volleyball team. So she did, still basically treated quite fine. But later on, of course, she returned to China as a as a China's uh, women's volleyball uh, team, then win glory uh, for the for the nation. Uh, so uh, so right now, of course, everything because because of uh, Sino-American relations seems enter the new uh, uh, new stage. Then people try to to approach issues in the in a totally different way. I I don't think, of course, the short term uh, development because in long term, I guess will be uh, <laughs> I'm a cautious optimistic would be the same. Um, yeah, so over the years, um, political protests has, has been, been a part of Olympic games, most notably, um, well, you have Munich 1936, um, or, you know, for Americans, John Carlos and Tommy Smith in 1968, um, athletes using their platform to, to advance an issue. This game is notably an absence of political protests. I don't know um, if either of you like to comment on sort of, you know, the reason why, what, what do you think that means? Um, just sort of the lack of the lack of protests at this, these games. Um, how about Professor Xu? Okay, um, yeah, you know, uh, Olympic Games, of course, as a mega events, always usually used by different groups, different people, different organizations to highlight their concerns, their opinions. The, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, in 1936, uh, lots of Germany did that. In 1968, of course, certain. Uh, ethnic in Mexico City's games try to raise awareness about human rights issues. Uh, in China, of course, basically in theory, according to Olympic Charter, uh, there's certain things you have a freedom to 
to raise your certain concern as long as you follow the rules. But of course, in reality, it's very difficult. For example, in 2008, I think the Chinese uh, set up a site or a uh, place for protest. Of course, nothing happened. So this year, uh, I guess because of bubble, because of many things, also because I guess the most of Chinese did not really care about this game. The Western media, of course, have a, don't uh, ignore this. So that's perhaps then maybe why there's so few protests up there. That's my uh, um, uh, my observation. I don't know what Amy's uh, uh, observation. Yeah, Amy. I, yeah, I mean, I think that um, as I mentioned earlier, China had made it pretty clear before the games even started that it would be um, it would not hesitate to take action against someone if they were seen to be violating Chinese law. Which, of course, we know that Chinese law can be interpreted pretty broadly in terms of you know what you say politically. So I think that had a pretty um, effective chilling effect on the athletes. And of course they're there, a lot, most of them are there. They worked so hard to get there, just not only training, but also just evading COVID. And some of them weren't even too able to in the end and just wanted to focus on their games. But we are, it is interesting, I think in recent days as the games have ended and athletes have started to leave China that we're starting to see more athletes now speak out and say things. Um, you know, criticize, uh, bring up criticisms that they didn't feel comfortable um, bringing up during the games. And I will, I will say that, you know, I mentioned that journalists were maybe the only ones that were um, asking about so-called sensitive questions like Xinjiang or Peng Shui during the games. But um, at one point, it was sort of interesting. In one of the later press conferences, one of the spokespeople, the spokeswoman for the Beijing Olympic Committee. Um, took the opportunity of one of the press conferences to um, <laughs> inject her own political views on Taiwan, on Xinjiang, um, you know, basically denying that there were any abuses in Xinjiang. Uh, she also took on a question of Taiwan and said that, you know, Taiwan is part of China and no one's, no one can question that. So, um, and later Thomas Bach, the IOC president, very subtly reprimanded her, but not really, but sort of reprimanded her for that. Um, so that was pretty much the only kind of political remarks that we heard during the entire event. But I would watch that space because I think that in these days you'll hear more. Yeah, so just taking a step back for a minute, as close observers of China and of the Olympic Games, can you share a highlight of this year's games for you personally? What will be your memory of these games in 10 years? I'll start with Professor Xu. Okay, for me, um, first of all, I think for this game, by the way, I was so uh, uh, surprised about the debate and discussion between both Chinese and American regarding the naturalized players. Uh, I think Amy mentioned uh, Anning Ku, and you mentioned the Zhu Yi or Beverly Zhu, and many others. That's basically, uh, because for me, basically, uh, I'm a big fan to, to, to use the Olympic Games sport to study the idea of China. Because that's always a question mark about, because I, I mentioned earlier that Chinese for generation try to seek wealth and power. But that's a, basically, that's a traditional definition of China. Now with the Aningku Chinese or American or Chinese American, how to do it? Because in the first Olympic game in Beijing 14 years ago, even my memory is correct, only one naturalized player on, for China. That's basically uh, uh, also this gentleman, uh, Alex, by the way, Hua Tian, Chinese name, Alex Hua, uh, uh, his father is, uh, is Chinese. Her mom is a British 
but this time we have a, if um, Amy could correct me if I'm wrong, I need 30 naturalized mm -hmm. players for the, uh, for on China side. Many of them, by the way, are Americans. That's again, it's a shocking to me as a historian because the Chinese always for their national nationalism, it's a basically, uh, so Yan Huang Zisheng, right? Offsprings of a yellow emperor, or basically Lender uh, Tuanren, right? It's a descendant of, of dragon. Now, when you see many of them, by the way, Aileen Gu, of course, she, uh, she has a half Chinese blood. Some of them players or naturalized Chinese doesn't look like Chinese at all. So that basically now for me, is a shocking through the Olympic game, we really can for both sides now, of course, get, get involved. What is China or who are the Chinese? So that's basically, it's a, a very interesting for me to follow. Another thing is uh, interesting to me. I pay attention to two China Olympic game, Beijing and two Los Angeles games. Because for example, the, for Beijing 2008, of course, everybody thought it's a, uh, it's a best opportunity for China uh, as a coming out party also basically has a, a lot of future for China. Uh, everybody give China, uh, especially ex, uh, external uh, society give China benefit of doubt, right? Also, uh, um, uh, George Bush, the junior one, the sitting president of the United States, even attended opening ceremony of Beijing Olympic game. Based on my understanding, no press sitting president has attended opening ceremony of Olympic game outside at all. Actually, in 1932, even Los Angeles was hosting it's a Olympic, first Olympic Games. In 1932, the sitting president himself refused to go there, just, just send his vice president. So that's again, so I will basically, for the next 10 years, I will uh, compare two Beijing Olympic Games and two Los Angeles Games. Because in, in 1918, 1984, that's PRC's first real participation in some Olympic Games, that's in Los Angeles. That of course the American government treat China as a stunning when Chinese delegation marched to the opening ceremony, almost 100,000 fans stood up, give Chinese standing ovation. It was Chinese, it was Chinese by the way, who saved Los Angeles games in 1984 because the world in big way, because Soviet Union obviously boycott the games, just uh, the European country boycott. So if the Chinese did not show up, just what that just imagine the deficit, the book. So that's a, a first Olympic Games uh, for, for you. Of course, 2028, Los Angeles is going right. to hold the games again because Chinese people now, some of course, very few say, let's diplomatically boycott LA games in 2028. But that again, the sports has a wonder, can achieve something miracle, just like we briefly discussed Chimpan diplomacy earlier. At that time, when both sides did not trust each other, they basically played ping-pong ball that changed the whole world, including Sino-American relations. So that's again, if for, for me as a scholar or as a fan of Olympic Games, so two Beijing games, two LA games will tell us a lot more. Just imagine, I could guarantee you by 2028, uh, that's a lot of Chinese will, will play on side of US, a lot of um, Americans will play on side of China as a naturalized citizens of each other. So that's going to be fun. That's again to, to use uh, the jargon of Olympic game that uh, by then we can say let's game begin, right? Perfect. 
great response. Amy? Um, my uh, takeaway is maybe a little bit more personal. Um, I just, because we were in the bubble, I mean, I lived in Beijing for a long time. I love the city. I really miss the city. Um, you know, I was part of the group of journalists that was expelled from China uh, two years ago now. So for me, it was really exciting to go back, um, even though we were very limited in terms of what we could see and do. We were stuck in this bubble. They literally used chains to lock us into our hotels. Um, and I couldn't see any of my friends and go to you know the places that I love so much in Beijing. Um, at one point I did though find myself very close <laughs> to, my friend just happened, one of my best friends in Beijing just happened to call me while I was in the car. And I was like, where are you? And she's like, oh, I'm, here and I'm like oh I'm so close and so I was like okay go to this place and then I just had I asked the driver very nicely I said can we please just I live, used to live here can we just go do a slow drive by and so I think he thought I was crazy but we went and um and I saw my friend and we were able you know this is a, someone I'm very close with and I talk to all the time and it was just so weird we did this like ah like out the window <laughs> I, it was just such a strange, bizarre experience. Um, also such a, you know, a sign of our, the, these strange times that we're in right now is having these sort of this pandemic era Olympics. I hope that we don't have to have another one. Um, and also just, you know, I think the Olympics are a big deal, but I think for China, it's not the biggest event on the political, on the calendar this year, uh, you know, later this year, Xi Jinping is many people think that he'll be taking a third term in power. And so, it was just sort of um, a little bit interesting to be in China at a time when it really feels like it's going through a big change. It's on, on the brink of a really big change. And it already has been. Like when I was in the last two years, it's been turning inward and it's becoming um, more sort of inward looking. And so, um, yeah, it just, there was, there was a moment, it just had this moment of this tense energy um, as well when we were there. Jason, can I add one point here? Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, 2022 is going to be a year of sport for China, by the way. After this Olympic Games, then there's a World University Games supposed to take place last year, but postponed it by the previous host, by the way, was Chinese Taipei in 2017. Right. So now it's going to take place in Chengdu uh, in May, if, um, uh, if they have not changed their schedule yet, then in July this year, Asian Games. Will be, will be in Hangzhou, China. Then, of course, the most important part of the game at all, even Chinese men are not qualified, it's a World Cup. But even that game will take place outside of China. All Chinese people, especially men, will talk about what is the, what, what's wrong with Chinese men. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so talk about idea of China. Then uh, I always joke about one day Chinese can achieve that dream. You, we basically, naturalize the best and brightest players from the world. Just 11 of them, right? Represent China, then win the World Cup uh, championship. Then of course, the big question is, is that what the Chinese want? Then of course, again, return to the question I posed earlier, then what's about answers to idea of China and Chinese-ness? But, but anyway, I just tried to through that for, for fun. Yeah, that's, that's huge questions. And um, you know, thank you so much to both of you uh, for being so generous of your time. We've only just scratched the surface of some of these critical issues, identity, nationalism, and what is China. Um, thanks so much to our viewers. Uh, over the past half century, the National Committee 
has facilitated mutual understanding through sport. As some of you know, hopefully many of you know, we were involved in ping pong diplomacy in 1971-72, and uh, we hope to play an active role with your help over the next half century. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.